simultaneously open to Romans chapter 9. Can you do that? I can't, so maybe you can. Uh, I just want to say we're going to be hitting up Romans a lot today. So if you want to put a little marker in Romans 9, 10, or 11, somewhere in that area, so we flip back and forth more readily. All right, have bookmarkers in Joel and in Romans. Um, this has been the most challenging, one of the most challenging studies I've ever done. Um, and I'm still struggling with it as we go through it. Uh, prophetic things are difficult. And I find the best thing to explain Scripture when I don't understand it is more Scripture. Because God's Word explains itself better than any other human being could. So if you remember last time we were together, we looked at Joel, chapters 1 through 2 and a half, the first half of the, the book. And we saw this uh, account where it seems like literal locusts, the big, the young, the small, the great locusts, came through, wiped the land clean as a judgment to the nation. And then Joel prophesies to the people and says, Listen guys, a time is coming where another wave of locusts, but this time in military form, riding on horseback and chariots, they will come through in a greater judgment. And it looks like it's actually a man coming through, through God's army coming through to judge the nation again. And we wrapped up with this... Oh, shoot. I just lost it. We wrapped up with this one thought about the Lord. And he says to his nation... All right, I just want to re- recap real quick. Even now declares the Lord in verse 12, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger, abounding in love. And He relents from sending calamity. We looked at the characteristics of our God, the nature of our God, and how deeply He loves mankind. How deeply He loves each and every one of us. And He wants to pardon our sins. So today, we're going to finish up the second half of Joel. But let's uh, commit this time to the Lord real quick. Lord our God, we give You thanks that You are a God that seeks after those who are lost. You leave the 99 seeking after that one lost sheep. And I thank You that I being that one lost sheep, You came after me. Lord, I'm so grateful to You. And I always look into your word, Lord. I pray that it be profitable for all those listening, that it be honor and glorifying to you. That everything that would be said and done would be truthful and of your word. And we give you thanks. We commit this time to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to read a good portion of chapter 2 and chapter 3. So if you want to turn it over with me, we'll pick up, all right, with the Lord's response to his nation. Here's what God has told, what Joel has prophesied about what's going to happen, and now the Lord is going to respond to his people. Verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord, sorry, then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people, and the Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain and new wine and oil, enough to satisfy fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern army far from you, pushing it into the parched and barren land, with its front columns going into the eastern sea, and those in the rear of the western sea. And its stench will go up, and its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Be not afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid, O wild animals, for open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. 
Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you autumn rains and righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring. The threshing floor will be filled with grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, and the other locusts and the locust swarm. My great army that I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other people ever, sorry, that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your younger men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my servant in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be returned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great day and the dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord has called. Now we're going to read a little portion from 3. In those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, where they will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel. For they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people. They traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine that they may drink. Down to verse 9. Proclaiming this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse you the warriors. Let the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision, the sun and the moon will be darkened, the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder in Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy, never again for foreigners, never again will foreigners invade her land. In that day the mountains will drip new wine, the hills will flow with milk. And all the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of uh, Shittim. Sorry. A f- <laughs> but Egypt will be desolate. Edom, a desert waste, because of violence done to the people in Judah. In those land they will shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem throughout all generations. Their blood guilt, which I have not pardoned, I will pardon. The Lord dwells in Zion. Whew. 
what a change in thought process from the beginning of the book being that of judgment and condemnation to the end of the book where we see prospering and life that the Lord brings. And in order for us, at least from my mindset, in order for me to get a, a good understanding of what the Lord is describing here, speaking to the people of Israel, I need to have a good foundation of the history of the people of Israel and where they're going. So we're going to do a quick recap in Bible time. Okay? So we know we'll start with Abraham. Abraham was chosen by God, right? And God made him a promise, made him a covenant, right? Unconditional covenant. That no matter what happens to Abraham, this is going to happen to you, right? And what did he promise him? He promised him a great land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He promised him descendants as numerous as the stars, and then he just promised him blessings and redemption for his people. Unconditional promise to Abraham, right? And then we also know that Throughout time, God made another promise to the Israel nation, a Davidic promise, a promise that there would always be a king who sits on the throne and reigns forever, speaking of the Messiah, the one who come, the promised one who would reign over Israel and right all the wrongs, and forever Israel would be blessed through him. After David, Solomon became king. After Solomon became king, his son became king, and there became a civil war. And the nation of, well, the Jewish nation split. Ten tribes went to the north. All right, they would call them Israel now. Then two tribes went to the south. We called them Judah. And the prophets that are written in Scripture, all right, the prophets, Joel being one of them, um, wrote to the people on behalf of God, telling them, listen, repent, repent to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Because you have wandered far from his ways. Remember the nation of Israel and, and Judah at that time became very wicked. They'd forgotten the Lord. They didn't even care about his word at all. And God pleaded with them to return. Otherwise he would have to send judgment. And sure enough the people never repented. And judgment came. First Assyria came down. And they conquered the land of Israel. And they took the ten tribes and they scattered them throughout the world. Then Babylon came down. And conquered Judah. Wiped everything out. Burnt the temple. Destroyed Jerusalem. Turned it all to rubble. And he carried all of Judah back to Babylon for 70 years. And the people lived in captivity. We call it the exile. They lived in exile for 70 years in Babylon. Then they were allowed to return. As prophesied. They were allowed to return back to the land. And they rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the city wall. And then they rebuilt their homes. The, the city itself of Jerusalem. Then we have 400 years of silence. That's where Micah pretty much ends off in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. We have 400 years of silence. Nothing's recorded in Scripture about what happens between the end of when the city and all is rebuilt, between when Jesus Christ arrives. Jesus Christ arrives on the scene. The Messiah, the promised one, finally came. The Jewish nation had been so long awaiting for this one person to save the people of their sins, to overthrow and to reign supreme, and he came. He was not the one that they were expecting. And what did Israel do with him? They rejected him. They crucified him. And they killed him. And now we see what we happen to be in what we call the church age. All right? Now I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so let me back up a little bit. When we looked at the first half of Joel, right? We talked about, I'm sorry, I should be looking at my notes when I'm speaking, not just going off my head. <laughs> I, got, I got moving too fast. Um, 
We talked about in Joel, right? God said a future army is coming. Okay, a future army is coming, guys. Do we know the exact date when Joel was written? No, we don't know. We don't know when Joel was written. I, I like to think, after reading many commentaries, that Joel was written before the people went into exile in Babylon. There are some that say it's afterwards. I, I'm just going off of what I, I believe to be true. All right, so don't quote me on this. But I believe when God says a, a, an army is coming to judge you guys, that the army that is like locusts going to come through the land, he's speaking up to the people, hey, the Assyrians and Babylonians, they're coming. And they're going to wipe you out. And it's going to be a horrible day. A great day of the Lord. A dreadful day. Who can endure it, they say. To me, that's what it's speaking of. There are others who disagree with that, and you may disagree with that. But to me, that, that's how I understand it. Because when I read down here, as I continue through the story of Joel, I see more events happening that have actually already happened. And follow chronologically through the book that we're going to look at next. And in order for this event to have happened, that one must have already happened, okay? We're now currently in the church age. All right? The Jewish nation has rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They're still waiting for the Messiah to come. The church age being that God has opened the door for you and me and Gentiles to accept Jesus Christ. See, the gospel, when Jesus Christ came, who did Jesus Christ first come for? He first came for the Jews, his own precious people, his chosen people. He first came for them and then for the Gentile. Thankfully, he did come for us too. And at this present time, God has chosen to display his blessings to us. Turn with me to, uh, let's go to Romans chapter 9. Alright. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are great sections in the New Testament. If you want to understand God's overview of his work with the Israelites and what he has done, what he is doing, and what he is going to do with them, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are, are the most clearly written scriptures about what he's doing with his nation and that he has not abandoned them yet. All right. Let's chapter 10. Let's start in chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. Paul is speaking here. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them, for they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to be established their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Verse 9, and Paul continues to say, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is written that with your heart you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wait a minute, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? That all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's actually coming from Joel. We see here that God has opened the way that He now views all of mankind in this present age 
All mankind has always been equal in God's eyes in that we're all sinners and we need a Savior. But God has opened the way for us to come to Him as Gentiles simply by believing on His name. That if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. God has taken those dead branches you can read, us, Gentiles, dead, and He grafts us in. He includes us into His family and makes us as adopted sons. Great thing. It's a great thing that God has done for us. <coughs> Turn with me now to Acts chapter 2. Alright? Acts chapter 2. Something interesting happens in Acts chapter 2. You may already know what happened in Acts chapter 2. Stay in Romans. We're going back there after. Again, we're trying to walk through the, the history now of things that has happened, things that are going on. In Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came up and rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in others' tongues as the Spirit enabled them. You see, on the day of Pentecost, what happened on the day of Pentecost? God sent His Holy Spirit into the land. And all the believers that were following Jesus Christ received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they began to prophesy and speak in tongues. And the people at the time were going, this is weird. These people are drunk. This is messed up, they're saying. This, this is not normal. Of course, it's definitely not normal, Right? And Peter stood up, in verse 14, Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and addressed the large crowd that was watching all this happen. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what has been spoken of by the prophet of Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on my people Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servant, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And it continues on. And Peter here quotes the book of Joel. So as we see here in Joel chapter 2, there is a prediction of a time that is going to come, has already come in our time, future for them, past for us, where God promised that He would send His spirit into the world to indwell people. Never before had that happened in history. Individuals at times, certain prophets, certain kings, all right, certain um, uh, judges, all right, were blessed to have the Holy Spirit indwell them. But never before in history has mass multitudes of people been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Today, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. It indwells you. We are the church age where God has allowed His Spirit to indwell in us, and then we come here on a Sunday morning to worship together. Israel, as a nation, has rejected God. Now, are all Jews rejected God? No, there are some. All right, We know that if we go to, I'm skipping ahead here, go to Romans chapter 11. Okay. Romans chapter 11. 
really, I really shouldn't skip ahead in my notes. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'm really getting ahead of myself, and I'm killing myself because I'm like, if I say this now, I'm going to destroy the thought that I want to say already. Um, Israel has not. Israel as a nation has rejected God. Now there are individuals. Maybe you know a Jewish person who is a believer in Jesus Christ. There are individuals because God works in a remnant, as we'll look at in a second. But as a nation, they have rejected God. Romans 11, verse 1 and 2. I ask then, Paul says, did God reject his people? Nation has rejected God. They have rejected his Messiah. God's own son, they have said no to. Has God, therefore, in return, rejected Israel? A lot of people think that the church has replaced Israel. That God has said, all right, guys, I've worked with you for like 4,000 years now, and you keep kicking me to the dirt saying, I don't want you, God. We don't want your ways. And now he said no to Israel. Listen, you're done. I'm fed up with you. Now I'll try the Gentiles over here. Is that what God has done? No. It says right here, by no means. God has not rejected his people. He has not turned his back on them. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says about the passage about Elijah? Now, how, the, how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I, have, I am the only one left. And they are trying to kill me. Remember, Elijah went up on a mountain, had this big thing with Baal. All right, God spoke fire from heaven. Fire, fire came down. Burned up the whole sacrifice. A great day for God. Great day for Elijah. Proved to the whole world that the God is the God of Israel. Then he runs and hides. And he flees and he, he's trembling. He says, God, I'm the only one left in all of Israel and they want to kill me too. If I die, then everyone who believes in you will be dead and I'll be the only one left. And oh, oh, horrible time. And God's like, just chill, Elijah. There are still 7,000 prophets that have not bowed the knee to Baal that are still following me. God always keeps a remnant around. And that is true right now. There is even a remnant right now in Israel of those who believe and follow God. But as a nation as a whole, they have rejected God. Verse 11, in chapter 11. Again I ask, did they stumble so, I'm sorry, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Is Israel beyond the point where they cannot be saved anymore? Have they walked so far away from God that God can't fix it? What does it say? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel what? Envious. Jealous. God has allowed, in His infinite wisdom, salvation to come to you and me to make His people envious and jealous. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their, fulfillments, will their fulfillment bring? 
See, right now, God desired to send blessings and riches to his own people through the Messiah. They rejected him. So what did God do? Well, you don't want it? I'll give it to the Gentiles. I will give you the blessings and riches to the rest of the world. Now, I don't know if you have any experience with this, but I, I do. Um, quite often with my kids, I might be eating some ice cream. I'm like, you know what? I want to share some of my ice cream. And I go to my daughter. I'm not going to name names. But, hey, no one's watching. Just you and me. Let's have a little something special, special here. Here's some ice cream. Dad, I don't want the vanilla. I want the chocolate. I, I'm sneaking you ice cream right now. And you don't want it because it's not good enough for you? You want a different one? Forget that. Hey, Madeline, come here. You want some ice cream? All right? I'm going to hook you up right here. That's kind of what God has said. Israel said, listen, God, I don't want your vanilla. It's not the flavor I want. I want the chocolate Messiah. I want the one that's going to reign supreme. I don't want the vanilla one. Okay? All right, that one. I don't want the vanilla flavor Messiah. We want the chocolate flavor Messiah. They rejected it. So what did God do? Well, rest of the world, here's the vanilla ice cream. Here's the good stuff. All right? And he has passed it on to the rest of the world. Has God rejected his people? No, he has not. He has not rejected his people. Is Israel too far that they cannot be saved? No. And we see that in Joel, God will restore his people. God will restore his people. Verse 25 in Romans 11. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until a full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. God has not abandoned his people. God is a faithful God, and it says right here that God's, hold on, flip my page, God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Has God promised gifts to his people? Has he made promises to his people? Yes, they are irrevocable. God will fulfill the promises that he has made to Israel. He has not said to Israel, forget you, I'm wiping your promises, taking away all your blessings, you'll never see them again, I'm giving them all to Gentiles. He has not done that. That would be the church replacing Israel. God still has a plan for his people, a plan to restore them, according to Joel, a plan to return the land to flowing milk and honey. He is planning to return the people of Israel back to himself. When will that happen? When will all it says here, when will all of Israel be saved? This, this, is, this is one that's going to mess with your mind a little bit. It messes with mine right here. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. There is a number that God knows. When all of the Gentiles, you and me who are not Jews, when all of us who are going to believe, have believed, all those who have been called are finally in God's family, that will spark the day 
when God will return to his people and all of Israel will be saved. Does that mean that all of Israel, every single individual Jewish person will be saved? I don't believe that to be true. I believe that as a nation as a whole, they will turn to God and accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Well, how do I know that to be true? Well, turn with me. Well, I'll just read it to you. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Great prophecy of what's going to happen to the descendants of David. All right? Zechariah 12:10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Has Israel, as a nation, wept over the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? No, they have not. A time is coming where as the nation, as a whole, they will recognize that, oops, we messed up. God did send His Messiah. And as a nation, we rejected Him. As a nation, we crucified Him. And the nation as a whole will mourn over that. They will once and for all recognize that God was and has fulfilled His promise to them. And He did send His Messiah. He did send the one who would reign supreme. And in that day, Jesus Christ will set up His reign here on earth. A time is coming when Israel will recognize that. They will recognize that. Now if we go back to Joel, what happens when that happens? What happens when it happens? What happens... What continues to fulfill, what continues to happen for the Jewish nation once they have recognized who they've crucified? Once they mourn for him, what will happen for them? Joel chapter 3, verse 17. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, that I dwell in Zion on my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, The mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and the ravines of Judah run with water, and fountain will flow out of the house of the Lord, and and will water in the valley of Shittim. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom will be a desert waste, because of violence done to my people, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem through all generations. Their blood guilt which I have not pardoned, I will pardon. The Lord dwells in Zion. A time is coming when God is going to restore his nation. And Israel will be great again. He is going to restore the land. And other prophets says there will be a new Eden. It will be fixed. It will be renewed. And the land will be flowing with milk and honey once again. The people of Israel will be restored They will follow after God with their heart. And I like the last verse, chapter, uh, verse 21. Let's pull it up here. All right. There's many different translations of this verse. All right. But I really enjoy the ESV and the King James translation of it. It says, I will avenge their blood, blood that I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Another translation says, For I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Two different ways of interpreting this verse. And, and I see both of them as fitting. One, 
we know that God will fix and right every wrong within his own nation. God will cleanse his own people's blood. The nation of Israel, he will forgive them, he will restore them, he will right all the wrongs within his own nation. He will cleanse their blood within the nation. And he will also avenge his blood. When you read through Joel, right? He says, hey, let's prepare for war. Joel chapter uh, 3 verse 9. Proclaim to the nations, prepare for war. Who's coming to this war? In verse 2, I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people, Jerusalem. For they scattered my people among the nations. They divided them up amongst my land. They casted lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes and sold girls for wine that they may drink. Any nation that has caused any harm, pain, difficulty for Israel, guess what? God's coming back for them. God one day will judge every single nation that has ever done anything wrong against his people. God is going to wipe them out. He's going to obliterate them. So not only will God come back and he will cleanse his nation of Israel, he will wipe their blood and make it clean again and restore them to following him. He is also going to judge the world and right every wrong in this world. Where is this all going to happen? Again, I'm not a great understander of prophecy, but it says here multiple times, it says here multiple times in verse chapter, sorry, chapter 3, verse 2, I will gather the nations, all the nations, and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Verse 12, let the nations be aroused, let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes, for the winepress is full, and the vats will overflow, so their wickedness, for so great is their wickedness. Multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision. What is he talking about here? To me, I, I can't help think. Uh, I don't know, have any of you ever farmers or before? Have you ever used a sickle before? Gone out there and you know, cutting down all the wheat and stuff like that? No? We don't really use sickles so much anymore. We use these things called weed whackers. Okay, I, I was out weed whacking a friend's house the other day, and it's just multitudes of grass, three feet tall. Just, you know, 20 minutes took out this huge property of land of really tall grass. Gone. Gone. When the Lord says here, multitudes are out there, all the nations are out there, and I'm going to swing my sickle, the Lord's just going to walk to wipe them all down. No effort for him at all. And it's going to happen as it says here, in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Where does the name Jehoshaphat come from? Does anybody know who Jehoshaphat was? Well, he's referring to a king. One of the decent kings of Israel. We know that after David and after Solomon, the land of Israel kind of went on this downward spiral. And as the kings went, so went the nation. If the king didn't follow God, well, neither did the nation. And... Well, most of the kings were pretty bad. There's some really wicked, nasty things, worshipped from really nasty gods. And the nation went on a downward spiral. Hence the reason why God came in and judged them with the Assyrians and with the Babylonians. But there was one king 
named Jehoshaphat. He's the son of Asa. When he was 35 years old, he became king of the land. And the first thing he did, told the priests, go get the word of God, teach it to the people. Then he went to all the high places and tore down all the high places. All the evil foreign gods took them out of the land. He cleaned up the land. During his reign, during his reign, you could go to Chronicles chapter 2, verse 20, 2 uh, Chronicles chapter 20, I'm not going to read it to you, but you can go there and you can read about this account where while he was reigning, obviously he was a, a good king for the most part, trying his best to serve the Lord. The Moabites, you know, one of Israel's worst enemies, didn't come up in a battle against them. The Moabites went and gathered every nation around Israel. Gathered them all together in this giant coalition, and they all marched as a group down to Jerusalem. Surrounded the city in a siege, as about to wipe them out. The king, Jehoshaphat, realizes that this is not going to be a good day for him. It's going to end swiftly and it's going to end quickly. And he prays to God. And he says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Jehoshaphat was not a king who tried to do things on his own. And in fact, God put him in a situation where he realized that there's nothing I can even do. Even if I take my whole army out there, it's going to be over in a flash. It is physically impossible for us to defeat this army. And the entire army that was against them was in this valley. That night, the Lord did a miracle. And he caused every single enemy to fight against themselves. The Israelites went out the next day, and guess what? The majority of the army was already dead. They all killed themselves, intercoraled, and they all fought, literally just fought against each other. And the Israelites went down, and the battle was already won. Did the Israelites have to do anything? Nothing. God did everything. Against insurmountable odds, God won the battle for the nation. And that is a picture of what's going to happen in the future. An insurmountable army will rise up against Israel. And they can't do anything. God will do everything for His people to protect them. God will judge every single nation that has and ever will rise up against Israel. And He will wipe them clean. And His people will have to do nothing. It's a great picture of what's to come. At Armageddon, when the Lord finishes it, when the Lord deals with evil for the last time, you know, all the nations rise up against God and His people. What do His people have to do? It says numbers and numbers fill the lands to advance against God. What do God's people have to do? Nothing. God speaks. And then armies are wiped out. God will fulfill His promise to His, his promised people. God will complete his work of dealing with evil. 
So a couple quick takeaways. Our God, though we may not understand what he's doing, may we, though we may not understand his rationale, he's a sovereign God. Does anyone mean sovereign? God does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants to do it. And ain't nobody going to tell him otherwise, because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He sits supreme on the throne. He will fulfill the things that he has said. He has a plan for Israel. He has a plan for the church. And I like the plan that he has for the church. Because you know what's next in the, the timeline of the church? He's coming back for us. And he's going to take us home to be in heaven. I like that timeline. I like that plan. As for Israel, right now, they're on a, they're on a holding pattern. But a time is coming when the number of Gentiles is fulfilled. That they, their eyes will be opened. And they will see Jesus Christ and they will weep. For they crucified him and rejected him. And God will begin to restore his people and restore the land. Our God is a great God. He has a mighty plan and he is going to fulfill it. And that's sort of the overview of the book of Joel. God has a plan for his people and he will fulfill it. There's a great hope if you trust in the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we give you thanks that you're an almighty God, that you reign supreme. And Lord, without you, there is no hope. There's only destruction and judgment. Without you, Lord, there's eternal suffering and hell. Lord, we know that through your Son, he has made a way for all of us to be redeemed. And where the enemies of you and the enemies of good, I will never have to face. Because you will do all the work. You will, de- you will destroy every evil, every army that rises up against you with the simple word of your voice. Lord, I'm so glad that I'm on the Lord's side. Because who can stand against it? Dreadful is the day of the Lord if you're on the wrong side. But great is the day of the Lord if you're on His side. And Lord, we know that we are on Your side. Because we are in Your family. And Lord, as we go into this time of prayer, we pray that we would lift up Your church, the body of Christ, universal around us. And we pray for them that Your word would spread forth through all the land. That there would not be a single people, not a single person who has not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because You are the one the only one mediator between God and man. And we give you thanks that you love us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's go into our time of prayer.